Chapter Twenty Nine of The Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Twenty Nine. It is not for prisoners to be too silent. Love's labor lost. Standing by our colors. On the way one of our party enjoined my colleague and myself you had better not say tribune to the rebels tell them you are correspondents of some less obnoxious journal months before i had asked three confederate officers paroled prisoners within our lines what would you do with the tribune correspondent if you captured him with the usual recklessness two had answered we would hang him upon the nearest sapling this remembrance was not cheering, but as we were the first correspondents of a radical northern journal who had fallen into the enemy's hands, after a moment's interchange of views, we decided to stand by our colors and tell the plain truth. It proved much the wiser course. One of the rescued men, coatless and hatless, with his face blackened until he looked like a native of Timbuktu, addressed me familiarly unable to recognize him i asked who are you why he replied i am captain ward confinement in the vicksburg jail when the explosion occurred he was sitting on the hurricane roof of the tug it was more exposed than any other position but the officers of the boat had shown symptoms of fear and he determined to be where his revolver would enable him to control them if they attempted to desert us so a missile struck his head and stunned him. When he recovered consciousness, the tug had gone to the bottom, and he was struggling in the river. He had strength enough to clutch a rope hanging over the side of a barge, and keep his head above water, permitting his sword and revolver, which greatly weighed him down, to sink. He called to his men on the blazing wreck. Under the hot fire of cannon and musketry, they formed a rope of their belts, and let it down to him. He fastened it under his arms. They lifted him up to the barge, whence he escaped by the hay-bale line. At Vicksburg the commander of the city guards registered our names. "'I hope, sir,' said Colburn, "'that you will give us comfortable quarters.' With a half-surprised expression, the major replied dryly, "'Oh, yes, sir. We will do the best we can for you.' The best proved ludicrously bad. Just before daylight, we were taken into the city jail. Its foul yard was half filled with criminals and convicts, black and white, all dirty and covered with vermin. In its midst was an open sewer, twelve or fifteen feet in diameter, the grand receptacle of all the prison filth. The rising sun of that sultry morning penetrated its reeking depths and produced the atmosphere of a pest-house. We dried our clothing before a fire in the yard, conversed with the villainous-looking jail-birds, and laughed about this unexpected result of our adventure. We had felt the danger of wounds or death, but it had not occurred to either of us that we might be captured. One of the private soldiers had paid a dollar for the privilege of coming on the expedition. To our query whether he deemed the money well invested, he replied that he would not have missed the experience for ten times the amount. One youth, confined in the jail for thieving, 
asked us the question with which we were soon to grow familiar what did you all come down here for to steal our niggers at noon we were taken out and marched through the streets junius's bare and bleeding feet excited the sympathy of a lady who immediately sent him a pair of stockings requesting if he ever met any of our soldiers suffering in the north that he would do as much for them the donor mrs arthur was a very earnest unionist with little sympathy for our soldiers but used the phrase as one of the habitual subterfuges of the loyalists the first glimpse of sambo while we waited in the office of the provost marshal i obtained a first brief glimpse of the inevitable negro just outside the open window which extended to the floor stood an african with great shining eyes expressing his sympathy through remarkable grimaces and contortions bowing scraping and husking his white ivories like an ear of corn rebel citizens and soldiers were all about him and somewhat alarmed i indicated by a look that he should be a little less demonstrative but sambo as usual knew what he was doing and was not detected the provost marshal captain wells of the twenty eighth louisiana infantry courteously assigned to us the upper story of the courthouse posting a sentinel at the door paroled to return home major watts the rebel agent of exchange called upon us and administered the following parole confederate states of america this is to certify that in accordance with a cartel in regard to an exchange of prisoners entered into between the governments of the united states of america and the confederate states of america on the twenty-second day of july eighteen sixty two albert d richardson citizen of new york who was captured on the fourth day of may at vicksburg and has since been held as a prisoner of war by the military authorities of the said confederate states is hereby paroled with full leave to return to his country on the following conditions namely that he will not take up arms again nor serve as military police or constabulary force in any fort garrison or field work held by either of said parties nor as a guard of prisoners depots or stores nor discharge any duty usually performed by soldiers until exchanged under the cartel referred to the aforesaid albert d richardson signifying his full and free consent to said conditions by his signature hereto thereby solemnly pledges his word and honor to a due observance of the same albert d richardson n g watts major confederate states army and agent for exchange of prisoners this parole was regular formal and final taken at a regular point of exchange by an officer duly appointed under the express provisions of the cartel major watts informed us that he was prevented from sending us across the lines at vicksburg only because grant's operations had suspended flag of truce communication he assured us that while he was thus compelled to forward us to richmond the only other point of exchange we should not be detained there beyond the arrival of the first truce boat turning the tables handsomely these formalities ended the major who was a polite kind-hearted rather pompous little officer made an attempt at condolence and consolation gentlemen said he with a good deal of self-complacency you are a long way from home 
However, do not despond. I have met a great many of your people in this condition. I have paroled some thousands of them, first and last. In fact, I confidently expect, within the next ten days, to see Major General Grant, who commands your army, a prisoner in this room. We knew something about that. Of course, we were familiar with the size of Grant's army, and, before we had been many hours in the rebel lines, we found Union people who told us minutely the strength of Pemberton. So we replied to the prophet that, while we had no sort of doubt of his seeing General Grant there, it would not be exactly in the capacity of a prisoner. Colburn, who had the good fortune for that occasion to be attached to the world, and who, on reaching Richmond, was sent home by the first truce boat, came back to Vicksburg in season to be in at the death. One of the first men he met, after the capture of the city, was Watts, to whom he rehearsed this little scene, with the characters reversed. Major, said he, with dry humor, you are a long distance from home, but do not despond. I have seen a good many of your people in this condition. In fact, I believe there are about thirty thousand of them here today, including Lieutenant General Pemberton, who commands your army. Visits from Many Rebels we stayed in vicksburg two days our noisy advent made us objects of attention several rebel journalists visited us with tenders of clothing money and any assistance they could render confederate officers and citizens called in large numbers inquiring eagerly about the condition of the north and the public feeling touching the war some complained that northern officers while in confinement had said to them while well, we are in favor of the union we disapprove altogether the war as conducted by this abolition administration, with its tendencies to Negro equality, but that, after reaching home, the same persons were peculiarly radical and bloodthirsty. As political affairs were the only topic of conversation, we had excellent opportunity for preventing any similar misunderstanding touching ourselves. Courteously, but frankly, we told them that we were in favor of the war, of emancipation, and of arming the negroes they manifested considerable feeling but used no harsh expressions two questions they invariably asked what are you going to do with us after you have subjugated us and what will you do with the negroes after you have freed them they talked much of our leading officers all seeming to consider rosencrantz the best general in the union service nearly all used a stereotyped rebel expression you can never conquer seven millions of people on their own soil we will fight to the last man we will die in the last ditch we reminded them that the determination they expressed was by no means peculiar to them referring to bancroft in proof that even the indian tribes at war with the early settlers of new england used exactly the same language we asked one Texan colonel, noticeably voluble concerning the last ditch, what he meant by it, if he really intended to fight after their army should be dispersed and their cities taken. Oh, no, he replied. You don't suppose I'm a fool, do you? As long as there is any show for us, we shall fight you. If you win, most of us will go to South America, Mexico, or Europe. Interview with Jacob Thompson. On Monday evening, Major General Forney, of Alabama, 
sent an officer to escort us to his headquarters. He received us with great frigidity, and we endeavored to be quite as icy as he. With some of his staff officers, genial young fellows educated in the North, we had a pleasant chat. Jacob Thompson of Mississippi, Buchanan Secretary of the Interior, and now a colonel on the staff of Lieutenant General Pemberton, was at the same headquarters. With the suavity of an old politician, he conversed with us for two or three hours. He asserted that some of our soldiers had treated his aged mother with great cruelty. He declared that northern dungeons now contained at least three thousand inoffensive southern citizens, who had never taken up arms, and were held only for alleged disloyalty. Many other rebel officers talked a great deal about arbitrary arrests in the north. Several gravely assured us that, in the South, from the beginning of the war, no citizen had ever been arrested, except by due process of law, under charges well defined and publicly made. We were a little astounded, afterward, to learn how utterly barefaced was this falsehood. On Tuesday evening we started for Jackson, Mississippi, in company with forty other Union prisoners. They were mainly from Ohio regiments, young in years, but veteran soldiers, farmer sons with intelligent, earnest faces. Pemberton's army was in motion. Our train passed slowly through his camps, and halted half an hour at several points among crowds of rebel privates. The Ohio boys and their guards were on the best possible terms, drinking whiskey and playing euchre together. The former indulged in a good deal of verbal skirmishing with the soldiers outside thrusting their heads from the car windows and shouting, Look out, Rebs! The Yankees are coming. Keep on marching if you don't want old Grant to catch you. How are times in the North? The Confederates replied. Cotton a dollar and twenty-five cents a pound in New York? How are times in the South? Flour one hundred and seventy-five dollars a barrel in Vicksburg, and none to be had at that. After waiting vainly for an answer to this quenching retort, the Buckeyes sang, Yankee Doodle, the star-spangled banner in john brown's body lies a-mouldering in the ground for the edification of their bewildered foes arrival in jackson mississippi before dark we reached jackson though a prisoner i entered it with far more pleasurable feelings than at my last visit for my tongue was now free and i was not sailing under false colors the dreary little city was in a great panic before we had been five minutes in the street, a precocious young newsboy came running among us, and, while shouting, Here's the Mississippian Extra, talked to us incessantly in a low tone. How are you, Yanks? You have come in a capital time. Greatest panic you ever saw. Everybody flying out of town. Governor Pettus issued a proclamation, telling the people to stand firm, and then ran away himself before the ink was dry. Kindness from Southern Editors We remained in Jackson three days. Upon parole, we were allowed to take our meals at a boarding house, several squares from the prison, and to visit the office of the Appeal. This journal, originally published at Memphis, was removed to Grenada upon the approach of our forces. Grenada being threatened, it was transferred to Jackson, thence to Atlanta, and finally to Montgomery, Alabama. It was emphatically a moving appeal. Its editors very kindly supplied us with clothing and money. They seemed to be sick of the war, 
and to retain little faith in the rebel cause, for which they had sacrificed so much, abandoning property in Memphis to the amount of $30,000. They now published the most enterprising and readable newspaper in the South. It was noticeably free from vituperation, calling the president Mr. Lincoln instead of the Illinois baboon, and characterizing us not as Yankee scoundrels, but as unwilling guests. Gentlemen who attempted to run the batteries on Sunday night, and after escaping death from shot and shell, from being scalded by the rushing steam, from roasting by the lively flames that enveloped their craft, were found in the river by a rescuing party, each clinging tenaciously to a bale of hay for safety. Grant's army was moving toward Jackson. We longed for his approach, straining our ears for the booming of his guns. The rebels, in their usual strain, declared that the city could not be captured, and would be defended to the last drop of blood. But on the night before our departure, we were confidentially told that the Federal advance was already within twenty-five miles, and certain to take the town. A PROJECT FOR ESCAPE With forty-five unarmed prisoners, we were placed on an ammunition train, which had not more than a dozen guards. The privates begged Captain Ward to lead them, and permit them to capture the train. We all deemed the project feasible. Ten minutes would suffice to blow up the cars. With twelve guns, we could easily march twenty miles through those sparse settlements to Grant's forces. But there were our paroles. A careful reading convinced us that if we failed in the attempt, the enemy would be justified, under the laws of war, in punishing us with death. And, after much debate, we abandoned the project. Rebel officers in Vicksburg had assured us that crossing the Confederacy from the Mississippi to the Atlantic, upon the Southern Railroads, was a more hazardous undertaking than running the river batteries. The rolling stock was in wretched condition, and fatal accidents frequently occurred, but we traveled at a leisurely, old-fashioned rate, averaging eight miles per hour, making long stops, and seldom running by night. End of chapter 29 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida